Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. I want to start off with some important business. Luke, have you ever heard of Lights, Camera, Jackson? I've heard the phrase, but I would not be able to tell you what it refers to. Well, his name is Jackson Murphy, and he got his start about 15 years ago. He was, I think, the son of like a TV sportscaster or something, like a fairly well-known like news personality. You know, he's like the world's shittiest Nepo baby, basically. And he gained notoriety originally as a kid movie critic. He would go on like Good Morning America and he would review the movies. When, when uh, was this? Was this the 90s? This was like 2010 era. Oh, 2010. It's that recent. Yeah. Because I feel like in the 90s, there was that wave of, I mean, I'm sure like periodically you would have registered those attempts to get like kids news going as an idea. And That's of course, right. there was like the great Simpsons episode about it. But it sounds kind of like in that species of thing. Well, Lights, Camera, Jackson, he used to be pulled out on Good Morning America and he be like 10 years old and precocious and apparently he won some sort of local new york emmy (laughs) he's like i think he claims to be the world's youngest emmy winner or something maybe in a particular category Roger Ebert took him under his wing a little bit, let him be on the Ebert Presents show. Uh, He went semi-viral in 2010 because he was on Good Morning America and he gave a negative review of Inception. The first thing I need to say about Inception is that it's not for kids and not because of bad language or extreme violence or adult subject matter. It's because the movie is very complicated to follow and kids, myself included, and probably many adults just won't get it. Director Christopher Nolan's previous film, The Dark Knight, worked for everybody. Movie fans from 8 to 88 enjoyed his twist on the Batman story. Trust me, there will be no Leonardo DiCaprio action figures at Walmart promoting Inception. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't like it. He was 10 years old. And uh, Howard Stern did a segment on it, basically making fun of him, saying, what the hell are they doing bringing this child on to review the movie? And George Takei was, I think, the guest that day, and he got Takei to say, yeah, he looks like a little freak. <laughs> George Takei, the most mild-mannered person of all time. Lights Camera Jackson is still at it. He's 24 years old now. He still identifies as Lights Camera Jackson. And listen, I'm saying this, trying to be as objective as possible. I'm not the first person to say this. If you've ever seen the movie Clifford starring Martin Short, he's a little bit like Martin Short in that film. That's his That's his vibe. He sort of almost like carries on the kid critic persona, even though he's 24. Well, what's great about him is... Nobody has taste like Lights Camera Jackson. He loves daytime TV. I think Regis was a mentor of his. So like he's like always... Re- Regis Philbin? Philbin. Yeah, that Regis. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not sure which other one it would be. <laughs> you say Regis, it conjures one particular thing. Regis is like Elvis, where there, there's <laughs> yeah, just yeah. one. Singular. <laughs> so he's always talking about how much he loves Regis Philbin. He's always, if ever there's a shakeup at Wheel of Fortune, you know, like <laughs> Jackson will be on it. He loves the Oscar race. A couple of years ago, he had a tweet where he was like, what's your favorite four film run? by a director and his was John Lee Hancock who made Saving Mr. Banks, The Blind Side, The Founder and a fourth movie. That's his favorite four film run of a director, John Lee Hancock. So nobody has taste like this guy. He's like a 24-year-old kid with like Saving Mr. Banks. He's a, by the way, just incidentally, we did an episode on that. I'm not going to say that it was the most unpleasant viewing experience uh, for this podcast considering the kind of stuff we've sat through, but I think it might be like one of my least favorite films just oh, yeah. like conceptually and at you know at the level of execution of anything we've watched yeah. for this podcast. Just as a rotten little heart that film. Oh. Awful. So he's he's a guy, I almost said a kid, he's a guy, he's an adult now, who he's a Zoomer, but he kind of has the taste of a 68-year-old Oscar voter. 
And I, I find that charming, kind of, because like you go online and a lot of people are trying to kind of follow the consensus. A lot of people are kind of trying to be hip. But this kid, he's like, this say kid, to Mr. Banks, baby. This well, kid, this 24 year old <laughs> marches to his own drum beat, and that's amazing. And for the most part, he presents the image of like a completely milk toast, like no edges guy. And then about once a year, he'll post something that just makes the entire world mad at him. And <laughs> So, for example, when the movie Trainwreck came out with Amy Schumer, when this was 2016, so he would have been in his teens. Okay, one of the things that he's really notorious for is he likes to take selfies with celebrities. Any award show he goes to, he's always, you know, always rushing awkward photos of him, like with Warren Beatty or whoever. And uh, he tweeted a photo of himself with Amy Schumer, where he said, spent the night with at Amy Schumer. Certainly not the first guy to write that. Hashtag Critics Choice Awards. To which Amy Schumer replied, I get it, because I'm a whore. Glad I took a photo with you. Hi to your dad. So her calling uh, Jackson out on his kind of unexamined sexism uh, became, you know, instantly notorious. If you look up Lights, Camera, Jackson, that's the first thing that will come up. 95% of the time he presents as like this weird kind of milquetoast guy. And then 5%, this weird darkness will emerge. Uh, something like that will happen. And that definitely happened this week when he went to see a movie. I- I've never seen a pile on like this. An instant candidate for like one of the worst tweets of all time, where he went to see he went to see a movie called Joyride, which, you know, is a comedy with, you know, an all Asian cast, a kind of like uh, raunchy comedy where he wrote, Hashtag joyride is embarrassing, incredibly unpleasant. Like most modern adults comedies, in quotes, it's raunchy simply to be raunchy, forgetting there has to be humor attached, and there's none of that. Objectifies men, targets white people. All shock value, look at me oh my, attitude. Oh my god. Okay, so if you've been following Lights Camera Jackson for years, like a tweet like that is like bullet in your brain. Again, milquetoast guy 95% of the time, but at one point when Trump was running in 2015, he went to a Trump rally and live tweeted it <laughs> as, as if reporting on it. Uh-huh. And it's the first time he's ever reported on any politics ever. So every now and then he'll do something like this. Anyway, just a onslaught of abuse that Lights Camera Jackson received for this. You know, we're up to 1,500 quote tweets on this. I mean, objectifies men, targets white people. And uh, incredibly, he did not respond in any way to it, except when George Takei, his old nemesis, (laughs) George Takei quote tweeted it and says, look, you're internet famous now. And Lights Camera Jackson replied, the truth is a powerful thing. So Lights Camera Jackson is just owning it. He's owning this new persona, you know? I think what I find so funny about Lights Camera Jackson is he was engineered in a lab to be the least offensive guy possible. And you know, here we are. He was created to be like this dorky, like kid film critic with milk toast opinions who's cute. And and like he's kept that identity into adulthood and it's like mutated in weird ways where he's still kind of like performing the persona of like a kid with adult opinions. And then 5% of the time he just unleashes one of these horrendous tweets that gets the entire world angry at him. There's nobody like him, Lights Camera Jackson. Uh, he's one of a kind. All right. Well, that was Will Sloan's Celebrity Corner. Uh, <laughs> Are you on Blue Sky yet, by the way? No, I. you know, I've been kind of resisting the, uh, I mean, I won't even say temptation. I haven't felt tempted. I was talking to a mutual friend of ours over the weekend who I visited, you know, and, he, and he'd uh, he'd got on it. But I don't know, for years I've been following, kind of laughing at these like right wing attempts to set up Twitter rivals where what inevitably happens is, you know, people create these things. And like the whole reason Twitter is durable is because, you know, everyone's there. And so what inevitably happens 
happens is these rival ones where it's like, yeah, uh, you'll never be canceled on this platform. Mm-hmm. Like true social, true, yeah, true social, whatever. Is it just ends up being people complaining about how they're being treated on Twitter? You know, obviously the winds have shifted at Twitter. I mean, one thing I will say is like. Twitter has obviously gotten like noticeably shittier and clunkier. I don't know. I, I feel like it's not going to die because at a certain point, you know, one way or another, probably some like more boring and like less mercurial capitalist will just like take it off Elon Musk's hands and then they'll just kind of reintroduce what the old business model was or something. But I don't know. I understand why people are going to Blue Sky and then, you know, uh, Mastodon and things like that, because like Twitter is genuinely like a heinous place now. I have a Blue Sky account now really just to kind of cover my bases. You know, I want to make sure that the Will Sloan brand has a presence everywhere. It's like setting up an office in a new territory. It is really funny what what's happened with like, I mean, there's nothing more emblematic of the shifting of the winds on Twitter than the transformation of sort of like the median blue check mark. Where like the two types of blue check mark now that I encounter are either like somebody with 200 followers with like extremely reactionary and bigoted opinions or like someone else that is like, I don't know, a Silicon Valley guy or a VC guy who's like obsessed with AI and like they're still obsessed with Bitcoin. They have 250,000 followers and then, yeah, they just tweet out those things where it's like, well, what if you made the Picasso bigger and you could see what was in the background or something? Well, now you can go to Blue Sky and encounter the old kind of blue check mark. Which is which is all that's where, there. Where, the, where it's like every tweet is like, uh, ooh, uh, looks like uh, you know, insert bad person here, uh, fucked around, and hmm, let's see, uh, checks watch, waits a few seconds, fucking found out. Yeah, we're really showing it to Elon Musk <laughs> by being over here on this identical platform. You, you know, it's something I, I love about uh, the new Twitter is how clearly insecure Elon Musk is. That no one's following him. Like he reinvented the blue check mark, and apparently only like the tiniest sliver of even like the new cohort of blue check marks follows him. So I guess he's just been like barking orders to the like, you know, uh, post austerity, like the diminished staff they have at Twitter to be like, you know, make make sure everyone sees my tweets. They like, create a note, give give everyone a notification saying follow Elon Musk tweets and just like nobody's doing it. It rules. I mean, I can sympathize with them whenever I see a sort of film adjacent account that doesn't follow me. I, I get very insecure <laughs> and anxious and they go, oh, they must they must hate me. <laughs> what's it? What's a high profile example of that? I'm not going to name names. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to give them the satisfaction. <laughs> Although you want to know something funny, I was on Blue Sky looking at the people there, you know, making some follows. And there was this one account that I remember had me blocked on Twitter. And I was like, oh, it's this person. I click, I'm already blocked on Blue Sky. <laughs> like wasted no fucking time. This person saw me and it was just like, nope, block. I was on for like six hours. You know, it's a really funny, uh, you know, terrain like this for me is the type of like Toronto person who just like followed me sort of by default, you know, 2018, 2019, that kind of stuff. That, that, they're saying you're getting you're getting bylines in the globe, you know. Yeah, they're they're, seeing... right. Or, or yeah, or probably more likely like U.S. publications, you know, particularly for like certain people in the Canadian media or like cultural scene. It's like, yeah, you write one article for like an American publication. Oh, yeah. They're like, wow. Like, and if it's an art, it. if the article is like why Doug Ford is bad, and it's <laughs> they and, really and love it's that. in the Atlantic or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which to, 
to be clear, I have not written that article. But then uh, there was like a bunch of people like that where, you know, uh, around about, I don't know, 2020, 2021, February I started being like, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you know where this is going. It's like, oh, why doesn't that person follow me anymore? And uh, yeah, the explanation is always just like uh, this person was uh, really into Elizabeth Warren and, uh, you know, they couldn't handle the heat and they got out of the kitchen. Well, you know, good for them. So speaking of Toronto, uh, we had a mayoral election. We recorded the last one before it actually happened. We were bullish about an Olivia Chow victory, and uh, she pulled it off. Rightly so, as it turned out. I'll um, say that the half hour when they were tabulating the votes when Bailao had a 5% lead, I, I think I was thinking about leaving the city. Yeah, so there's a few things people need to know about this. So, I mean, there was this last minute, you know, attempt by, you know, various figures in the Toronto political establishment, former mayors and such, uh, including the uh, disgraced former mayor, John Tory. Uh, there's kind of this last minute, like, we've got to consolidate the anti-Chow vote. Um, there were sort of two anti-Chow candidates. There was also Mark Saunders, who's very much Doug Ford's horse in the race, uh, the former chief of police. Anna Balau is sort of a Dulles Ditchwater, you know, former like center-right city councillor. And the votes in the Toronto election were counted electronically, which means the results come in alarmingly fast. So, you know, you're sitting down to watch and, you know, you get like basically 20% of the votes right away. And yeah, there was a good half hour, as Will said, where Anna Balau had a lead of, you know, 3,000 votes, 6,000 votes, 10,000 votes. And uh, yeah, it was definitely starting to induce some anxiety in me. You know, there are people on the panel sort of starting to say, well, I know these are early results, but and I, I was like sitting there yelling at the TV, like, these aren't early results. We have more than half the results. You know, what the hell are you talking about? So then I started, you know, reaching for like, I, I was smashing the panic button. I was like, well, we're, we're going to get the mail-in votes. We're going to get where I was starting, like, I was looking at, I was looking at the wards, the individual wards. I'm like, where are these coming from? When Ohio and Michigan come in, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. she doesn't need Florida. Yeah, the vote is coming from inside the house. <laughs> no, I mean, I started looking at the individual wards and I was like, oh, no, actually, uh, this is fine because, you know, you look at like the percentage of the polls counted downtown and in Scarborough. And I was like, uh, Olivia's going to make it up there. And uh, let me tell you, the sort of 20 minutes, half an hour of suspense beforehand only made it like that much sweeter when she ended up winning by, you know, 40,000 votes or whatever it was. I mean, honestly, the consolidate a, a weak mandate, I hear. Oh, I mean, don't, I, I've don't, been, don't, been reading that don't in the press. Get me started on that. But I mean, you know, the, the polls basically were borne out as far as Chow's vote was concerned. In fact, I would say she she overperformed kind of her uh, her average in the polls over the past few weeks. Uh, what changed were, I suppose, two things. One, the anti-Chow vote consolidated around Balaam more effectively than anyone had expected. And then kind of uh, relatedly... I mean, the vote for all the other candidates, I mean, there were, you know, considered to be five, six, seven, you know, credible major candidates in this race. And the votes for everyone else essentially collapsed. So Olivia Chow got about 270,000 votes, Anna Balao, 235,000 votes. And then Mark Saunders, so this is the drop off from Anna Balao in second, 235,000 votes, he got 62,000. And then the drop off from him to Anthony Fury, uh, the Toronto Sun columnist who we talked about on recent episodes, he got 35,000 thousand votes. So he's like almost 30,000 votes less. Josh Matlow. We're now in the kind of like 5% range. Yeah. And then and then pretty soon we get below that. So Mitzi Hunter, former Ontario Liberal cabinet minister who resigned her seat recently in Scarborough to run for mayor, 21,000 votes. Chloe Brown, 18,000 votes. And then my, my 
my personal favorite, uh, Counselor Brad Bradford, uh, who basically ran. I mean, I, I guess I can't say that he was the most heinous candidate in the race because you know be- both Bilal and, and uh, Saunders uh, pretty bad. But Brad Bradford ran this kind of. I mean, I would say I would characterize his campaign as just being like anti-public sector. Everything was like we need to have like open tendering at City Hall. You know, he kept talking about like the need to build housing, uh, which I know sounds good to people, although it kind of sounded that good when I tell you what his vote share was. But I mean, like all he was talking about was like, yeah, like developers don't have enough freedom. We need to cut more regulations and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, he got less than 10,000 votes. Like I think he got about 1.2% of the vote. This guy was in every single debate. A few more honorable mentions. I mean, I was absolutely fascinated by some of the other also rands. So I don't think we've talked about him, but a guy who's become a sort of minor meme in this election is uh, one Zhao Gong. I think I'm pronouncing his name. Uh, for, number 44 on the ballot. That was that was the slogan. So this guy had the most signs of anyone in the race. Definitely not violating any campaign laws for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had a billboard at Young and Dundas Square. Well, in the Pride Parade, he had a whole Huge float. Huge float. All this kind of stuff. His ads were all over YouTube. His like weird AI generated ads. Unmissable. And I think he got maybe you have the number, but he got in the range of 2,000 votes. It was, yeah, just under 3,000. And I was keeping a close eye on Gong because it's a test of, okay, how much can money and only money buy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like, you know, Michael Bloomberg already put that to the test and, <laughs> and showed, you know, not very much. And this guy, it, it bought even less. Uh, Giorgio Mamaliti, absolutely heinous former right-wing counselor, but, you know, a very publicly visible guy. He got about 1,100 votes. Disaster. Oh, yeah. The other thing about Gong, by the way, is that if he demanded a recount because he's like, well, I actually beat Olivia let's all, Chow. Let's all do January 6th. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's over 100 candidates, but there's a few more that are worth mentioning here. Uh, uh, prominent Italian Canadian filmmaker and uh, Will Sloan uh, nemesis, uh, Frank D'Angelo. Uh, he got 343 votes. Now that I find really interesting because on the one hand, I think, where did he get 333 people? That seems like a lot of people to vote for him. But then on the other hand, I think, couldn't he have scraped a few more irony votes together? A few more like protest votes? I don't know, man. And this one is one that I find absolutely baffling. I mean, just when I tell you what this person's uh, former position was and how many votes they got, I mean, I really don't even know how to explain it. But Selena Caesar Chavanez, I I think that's how you pronounce her last name. She was parliamentary secretary to the prime minister, like recently, like she was a liberal MP uh, of Scarborough. And I mean, parliamentary secretaries, you know, they're more titles, I think, than they are, you know, cabinet positions. But I mean, you know, it's pretty significant title to hold if you're a rookie MP. She got 254 votes, which... Less than Frank D'Angelo. Yeah, absolutely baffling. The other thing that made me feel good about it as the results were coming in, even when Olivia was still trailing, was the fact that her vote in Scarborough seemed to be doing very well. So, you know, the sort of thing you say if you're a right-wing misanthrope who doesn't like a politician like Olivia Chow is you say, oh, they're like a downtown candidate. Well, she won like almost all but one ward in Scarborough. Um, And honestly, she did pretty well in like Etobicoke, Rexdale as well. Her vote was pretty high everywhere. And um, if I can just like put a little lemon juice on the wound, I also couldn't help but notice that she absolutely rinsed Anna Bilal, uh 17,000 votes to 10,000 in Davenport, which was the ward that Bilal herself represented for, you know, something like a decade. But yeah, the, the drama was uh, pretty sweet on election night, given the 20 minutes or so of suspense, because I was watching this panel, I think it was CP24, where the panel for the most part was pretty right wing. I think there were like three or four like right wing people 
on it, maybe like two that weren't. And you could just see as the results were coming in just how giddy like Stephen Harper's former press secretary was getting, Toronto Sun columnist, that sort of person. They were just getting so geared up to be like, uh, what this shows is that people in Toronto don't want their taxes to go up. They're not convinced that Olivia Chow is going to protect public safety. And then as soon as like the vote flipped, then they immediately had to spin. And it was quite awkward because they'd already overcommitted to the other narrative. They got ahead of themselves. And then all of a sudden it was, yeah, this shit about like, well, this is not actually a very strong mandate. I mean, look, she's only ahead by like 2000 votes. And yeah, the night finishes and it's like 40,000 votes or whatever. All in all, satisfying. I mean, you know, if you're not from Toronto, I do think the significance of this result may be somewhat lost. I mean, obviously, there have been a wave of progressive victories at the municipal level recently in the United States as well. Boston, or, or more recently, Chicago with Brandon Johnson, both good examples. And I do think this deserves to be thought about in the same vein. You know, it's kind of a major city rejecting what have basically been the consensus politics of the last 30 or 40 years. In Toronto, though, I think uh, it's particularly significant because... Toronto is a city that, I mean, since its amalgamation has only had, you know, seven years of a non-right-wing mayor. So Toronto's been an amalgamated city since 1999, and the vast majority of those years have been under right-wing leadership. So it really is a repudiation of that. And, you know, Olivia Chow uh, also ran in 2014 and ran, I think, a much kind of safer. I mean, she was kind of the front runner in both campaigns, although in this campaign, you know, she started basically even with some of the other candidates. And then, you know, I would argue because she ran a good campaign and had, you know, a series of unbelievably uh, disciplined debate performances. She steadily rose in the polls. But I think the campaign was less ideologically cautious this time. You know, on a personal level, uh, I like Olivia Chow. I mean, I don't know her well, but she was very kind to me. In 2009, when I went to my very first NDP convention on the East Coast, it was in Halifax. She's a very egalitarian personality. And I very nervously went up to her, someone who lived in her riding. And she was just, yeah, very like warm and welcoming. She's that kind of a person. But in 2014, her campaign was a little more conservatively minded. I get the sense she's more or less said, you know, publicly that she regrets certain things about that campaign. And in this one, you know, she really made, uh, you know, a basically sort of municipal social democratic case. She said, we need to get the city directly involved in building public housing. We can't just have police as the solution to everything. Like, it doesn't work and it's not a good idea anyway. She campaigned on a mansion tax. She basically ran against the sort of, you know, developer-driven consensus that has been, you know, the norm in, uh, you know, Toronto politics for the majority of its existence. And so, you know, I really was not down in all kinds of ways for this sort of bitter right-wing take that we were getting the morning afterwards like oh it's just a weak mandate and like the mayor's only one vote she's not gonna be able to do anything anyway and it's like buddy listen I was on the other side of this in 2010 and I remember a lot of conversations about how Rob Ford was only gonna be one vote on council you saw how that turned out so it's a big deal and yeah hopefully this will uh, turn out the same way although for good instead of evil I'm Rick Dalton that's your son no that's my stunt double Cliff Booth All right, what's the matter, partner? Line? It's official, old buddy. It has been. Burst yourself like that in front of all those damn people. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I play Miss Carlson. 
Cuts. Well, on this episode, we're making movies great again. We're talking about Quentin Tarantino's 2019 Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And uh, the reason I wanted to bring this one up is because we've been talking a lot about the death of cinema lately. You know, we just saw The Flash, which represents, you know, the, the time that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was set in, this kind of end of the studio era, <laughs> a time when movies like, I don't know, Dr. Doolittle or Hello, Dolly were being made that cost, you know, $20 million, you know, which then was a lot of money and we're losing huge amounts of money and there was this huge shifting of the tectonic plates in Hollywood and I mean I'm not sure if we're going to get Easy Rider now but we're seeing not just one huge blockbuster after another flopping hard but just a general sense of malaise a sense of as you've said before the wiring being stripped out of the culture to try to make some new culture. It's great it's like uh, European monarchies getting toppled in the 19th century it's like something's got to give folks. Once upon a time in Hollywood Hollywood occupies a huge place in the um, cinephile imaginary at this point. It was released in 2019, you know, the year before the lockdown, alongside such other enormous zeitgeist baiting auteur projects as The Irishman, Parasite, Joker, Uncut Gems, movies that seem to speak directly to the current moment, that seem to combine art and commerce in interesting ways, uh, seemed like big conversation movies. And we, we lost a lot of that feeling during the pandemic when so really tiger king didn't stimulate i knew you. <laughs> i knew you were gonna say tiger king the, the, the that movie coastal elites that they made over zoom that didn't drive home to you how important it was to go vote donald trump out of office this movie has also <laughs> entered the cinephile imaginary because it's been a lightning rod you know it was enormously popular a very lauded film and yet also a movie that provoked a harsh backlash in some quarters a movie that was widely seen as a sort of reactionary text and an unabashedly, unashamedly backwards-looking movie, not just in its content and ideas, but also in its affect. It's a huge star-driven movie, you know, two big stars, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, who taken together sort of represent, um, and I'm, I'm sure this isn't actually true, but seem to represent the last of a certain kind of movie star. Tarantino himself, the last of a certain kind of director. I mean, that's not true either, but y- you know what I mean. Also, like, appearances by people like Al Pacino, Kurt Russell, Bruce Dern. She doesn't belong in the same category, but Margot Robbie, I suppose, is sort of the third build character in this film as Sharon Tate. It was, of course, shot and widely distributed on 35 millimeter film, which is increasingly an anachronism. It's also a movie that seeks consciously to go against the grain, not just of the way that movies these days look and sound and feel and the way that stories are told in them but also in its, I think, flagrant rejection of uh, liberal pieties. You know, the most consequential scene of the movie arguably involves the Manson family, which for so long has been this cultural signifier of the end of something. It's also set in a film industry that is experiencing the winds of change, which is embodied by figures as varied as Roman Polanski and Bruce Lee. And it's a movie whose sympathies, I think, are not uncomplicatedly, but still firmly with the old guard. Yeah, I mean, when Will suggested we talk about this one, I was instinctive attracted to the idea because although I've seen it twice, I feel like on uh, previous viewings, I was sort of so dazzled by just how entertaining I find it. I didn't have my They Live glasses on. 
So, you know, I was I was very keen to watch it again um, with sort of, you know, the political part of my brain switched on. Um, you know, I did see this movie at a drive-in. I think probably the only time I've ever been to a drive-in movie theater. And the story is only relevant insofar as uh, my friends and I got there a little early and we saw like 25 minutes of Hobbs and Shaw, which was on before. A beautiful film. <laughs> I mean... Look, Can we talk about uh, those 2019 this, movies that spoke to the zeitgeist. Oh my god! It, I mean, I mean, how can you fuck up a movie that has that cast and is just like such a fun, dumb conceit? But it was. I mean, we 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 got there for like whatever the climactic, you know, chase or shootout scene was or whatever, and yeah, dog shit. But I mean, just you know, cards on the table. Having seen it again, I have to say, I, I'm not super interested in getting bogged down in sort of granular debates, scene by scene sort of debates about you know the movie's politics. I mean, I think having seen it again, I definitely lean strongly towards uh, the politics of this film, the political subtext being quite retrograde. Um, I think the function of Charles Manson as an antagonist and the Manson family I mean, its function as kind of the, the force that disrupts the equilibrium, you know, I think its function is to be a part of a sort of neo-Nixonian wish fulfillment fantasy in which an idealized silent majority basically triumphs over the excesses of counterculture. Not unlike Forrest Gump or a movie like that, with what I would argue is the very critical distinction of unlike Forrest Gump, this movie is actually good. <laughs> so, I, I mean, so cards yeah. on the table, I think that's my take on it. I think, you know, in Will's introduction, one of the things he mentioned was how this film pretty much goes against the grain of sort of the 2019 cultural zeitgeist. It very much uh, is uninterested in, I mean, you you put it somewhat pejoratively as liberal pieties. I suppose there's more diplomatic ways of putting it as well. But I I definitely agree. The thing is, though, uh, I really do find this a very entertaining film. And I actually find the reactionary subtext interesting, for want of a better word. I don't know how to articulate it any more than that. Well, I agree completely. I mean, John Ford is a conservative filmmaker, but his work is so often dealing in ambiguity. And I think this movie is too. The late 60s is a terrain. I think Tarantino is a smart enough filmmaker that he leaves a lot of room for debate and disquietude. I did find certain elements of it more troubling than I did four years ago, but I also found other parts of it richer and even more entertaining than I did. So let's talk about the plot a little bit. I mean, I'm assuming most of you listening, you know, or some of you anyway, will have seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But in case you haven't or you haven't seen it recently, uh, we could probably use a little refresher. So, Will, what is this film about? Well, the protagonists are Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, a once popular TV cowboy star in the 1960s who's on his way down. And also has never been as famous as he kind of hoped. There's a funny scene where we find out that he auditioned or like almost auditioned for The Great Escape and then we get to see him. I mean, the movie's full of fun little Easter eggs like this. Maybe it's trivializing to call it an Easter egg, but there's a scene where you get to see Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton in The Great Escape. And it's very funny because the way it's shot, it's like, well, yeah, of course this wouldn't work. But he's still bitter about it because he's like imagining, well, what if I'd have been in The Great Escape? Maybe I wouldn't be a washed up loser. DiCaprio's performance in that great escape scene is so good, by the way, because (laughs) he lays on superficial (laughs) charisma in that clip. He lays on a kind of smug, manufactured charisma. And then if you see Steve McQueen in the movie, it's like, oh, that's what actual charisma looks like. It's It's a very nuanced piece of acting. But yes, Rick Dalton is sort of Clint Eastwood if all he had was gun smoke. 
The show has ended. His American film career has petered out, his short-lived American film career, and he's now taking gigs as a villain of the week on various lowbrow TV shows, waiting for something to happen in his career. He's on the way down, and his agent is trying to acclimatize him to that fact, saying, go over to Italy and make spaghetti westerns. You know, this this is the future. Like, you can be a star in spaghetti westerns. But whatever path he takes, it's clear. He'll never be Clint Eastwood. It is so funny what a sad sack Rick Dalton is. Like, there's this really funny scene where, you know, he's on the set of one of these things where, you know, he's kind of like a novelty item, like it's a Western. And, you know, they're clearly like dragging this guy, you know, from the 1950s, like, you know, out from not retirement, but they're dragging him out from his abject loserdom for people to gawk at in whatever like shitty like TV show they're making. So he's on set and he's talking to this uh, this little girl who's uh, played by Julia Butters. The character's name is Trudy. She's about eight years old but very charismatic performance that she gives, by the way. And uh, this scene is so funny because she's clearly much more well-adjusted and also much more attuned to the craft of acting than he is. He's sitting there reading some, like, Western that he's explaining the plot to her. And it's obviously, like, just such a piece of shit. Like, the plot is like, uh, oh, well, there was a cowboy, but he ain't what it used to be. And then he just, like, breaks down in tears. I like that the movie leans into that. Like, he's such an abject figure, but also he's on the set of this crummy TV show where this young actress who's probably had like zero training and it might be like her first role is like clearly has it together more than he does. I know I've been evangelizing for so long for that podcast that uh, Dana Carvey and David Spade host <laughs> that that one fly on the wall. Yeah, I mean, they, they practically owe us like sponsorship dollars at this point. There was this one episode that I remember where Dana Carvey is talking about how much he likes Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's seen it like five times and he says something <laughs> like, I mean, look, I'm an old has-been. The movie resonated with me and I thought that's wow, awesome that's that's powerful and and like there is something powerful in this movie's depiction yeah. of like please don't post something snarky that like that like irreversible decline yeah and yet like the machinery like he's still in the house he's still got the bodyguard but the writing's on the wall well and also it's funny because in some ways he's in no position to complain I mean it's like as uh, you know Brad Pitt who plays his longtime stunt double who you know very much seems to be like the power behind the throne I mean he's the guy that's that's not quite the right expression, but he's the guy who sort of helped make Rick Dalton's career by like actually doing all the stunts and like all of the action for which he's actually famous. And he sort of says to Rick Dalton, like going to Italy and starring in movies does not sound like the death sentence to me that you seem to think it does. So it's like, yes, he's a has-been, but I mean, also, like, to be a Hollywood has-been is uh, is kind of like a good problem to have, and it's pretty funny that he uh, is so troubled by it. Brad Pitt's character, by the way, is Cliff Booth, who, yeah, is his stuntman turned driver turned all-around assistant. A critical detail about his character is that he has a sort of Robert Wagner-like stench surrounding him. Uh, he's widely suspected of having killed his wife when they were out on a boat. And we get a little glimpse of a flashback scene of his wife being, you know, for want of a better term, a shrew. You know, that's kind of how she's depicted. And he's holding a harpoon. And the question is, well, did the harpoon go off by accident? Now, I got to tell you, when I saw this movie with my girlfriend, uh, she was deeply offended by this scene, was deeply offended by the sort of playing of the murder of the wife for laughs, um, as well as the way that the movie subsequently sort of positions, you know, after this scene where, you know, like the guy killed his wife. 
life. Uh, it sort of positions him throughout as this, like you say, neo-Nixonian. He's a, lo- he's a lovable scoundrel. Yeah, when he meets uh, the hippies later. Oh, yeah, okay, so this scene, right, so there, there's a scene, you know, one of the probably the more famous scenes in this movie is one in which various flashes of, you know, you can see, like, people who were clearly, you know, Manson family, you know, and there's a scene early on where uh, Brad Pitt's character is driving down the streets of L.A. and he sees a bunch of them crossing the street and then one of them, played by Margaret Qualley, uh, sort of winks at him and he has a little sort of flirtation with her. She hitches a ride with him and she offers him a blowjob. And this scene, I think, probably as much as any in the movie speaks to the reactionary subtext that I mentioned off the top because he, he resists the offer by, you know, asking her how old she is and that kind of stuff. So this is a character where the movie can be like, yeah, 99% certain that he murdered his wife, which we're like, yeah, we're playing for laughs. But also, look, he's still part of the silent majority that, like, understands, like, right and wrong and, like, the law That's and right. stuff like that. And, of course, at the end, spoiler, I mean, if you haven't seen this movie, pause the cassette now, you know, <laughs> go go watch it. But, I mean, at the end, during the kind of uh, the wish fulfillment portion of the movie, you know, he plays a critical role in, like, the meeting out of justice to uh, the excesses of the counterculture as represented by the Mansons. Well, and Tarantino also draws a parallel between the cowboy and the story that Rick Dalton is reading and the Brad Pitt character at the end, who's, you know, wounded, being let off, but he's going to fight another day. You know, he's he's an old cowboy. He's also that way when he visits the Spawn Ranch about two thirds of the way into the movie, which is depicted as sort of like a, a hippie den. And Tarantino, who's so well versed in these sorts of movies, is surely thinking of movies like Walking Tall or Joe or Dirty Harry, even, you know, sort of a strong, silent type uh, hippie ass kicking movies when he makes a scene like that. Yeah, this is this sequence is particularly interesting. And there's a nice touch that uh, that you registered about the casting here, because there's I mean, there's a lot of famous people uh, with kind of minor roles, many of whom appear in this movie, many of whom appear in this sequence. I guess a mostly pre-fame or at least pre-mega fame, uh, Sidney Sweeney is actually in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She plays one of the Mansons, but also also, you notice that uh, there's a whole bunch of people cast who are the children of famous people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Andy McDowell's. Yeah, Margaret Qualley, who's yeah. Andy Mc... yeah. who's mentioned already, who's Andy McDowell's daughter. Kevin Smith's daughter is in there. Lena Dunham is in this sequence. Also, Austin Butler is on the Manson farm as well. Now, the Manson family is sort of repositioned in this movie as hippies. Well, I'm not sure they're repositioned. My sense is that they've been used as, in my view, a kind of lazy shorthand for the excesses of counterculture or the alleged excesses of the 60s counterculture. Well, towards uh, the end of the movie, when, when the night happens, and I realize we're getting ahead of ourselves, but the motivation that Tarantino puts into them is, you know, one of them who's talking a mile a minute, obviously on speed or something, is saying, that guy Rick Dalton, you know, he did violence on TV. Well, we need to kill violence with violence. She's basically like a woke scold, you know. Fuck you, Katie. Sorry, I don't know the name of every fascist on TV in the 50s. I can't believe that asshole in the robe was J.K. Hill. When I was a kid, I had a Bounty Law lunchbox. That was my favorite of all my lunchboxes. Dig this. We've been having our trip sessions. I've been expanding on this one idea in my head. Dig it. We all grew up watching TV, you know what I mean? And if you grew up watching TV, that means you grew up watching murder. Every show on TV that was an I Love Lucy was about murder. So, my idea is, we kill the people who taught us to kill. 
I mean, there's a, there's a famous line from uh, Joan Didion's The White Album, or a famous few sentences where Didion wrote, Many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9th, 1969, at the exact moment when word of the murders on Celio Drive traveled like brush fire through the community. And in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. So I think that articulates very well what has sort of been the received wisdom about that era, you know, like the moment when the overreach of the 60s and its licentiousness came home to roost. I mean, it's it's always that or the, you know, the Rolling Stones at Altamont. Now, of course, if Charles Manson were around today and he were a kind of guy on the fringes of Hollywood, had been rejected by the entertainment industry, he might not have become a cult leader. He might have become like, you know, a right wing anti-woke he, blogger. Yeah, he, he'd fucking work at one of those billionaire funded, you know, right wing media ventures where the whole thing is just actually like a thinly veiled thing. So he, someone can make shitty music videos or whatever. But yeah, Tarantino uses them as sort of uh, one part of this ecosystem of, for want of a better term, progressive change. One of the narratives of the old Hollywood is that it ended around this time and it was replaced by the new Hollywood, the new American cinema, you know, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, all of that. And that's supposed to be a bad thing, I guess. Well, I think what Tarantino is saying in this movie is we were too quick to leave the old ways behind or we were too quick to disavow the old ways. It's important in this movie that all of the culture that we see, or almost all of the culture that we see, is tacky and bad. Yeah, you know, you you pointed this out while we were watching, and I do think that's a very interesting observation, because, I mean, it definitely complicates the idea that Tarantino is just, you know, uncritically idealizing this period, because so much of what he shows you quite deliberately is schlocky. Like, there's a scene where Rick Dalton and his stuntman are watching some, you know, cop show or something that I guess he was in. And yeah, I mean, it's just pablum, and the movie knows it's pablum. And yeah, whenever you see a billboard, the movie is, you know, a George Pappard film or The Night They Raided Minsky's or Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, goes to see her movie, The Wrecking Crew with Dean Martin, which is nobody's idea of a good movie. And yet, I think what Tarantino is saying is, look within the dark matter of American culture, all of these forgotten shows, and you'll find all sorts of wonderful actors who were not given their due. You'll find all sorts of talent. A lot of the drama of the second act of the movie is Rick Dalton fully having a midlife crisis, playing a villain on a pilot episode of a TV show that he's filming. And Tarantino shoots this TV show as if it's a movie. He doesn't shoot it like a black and white TV show as he does the early scenes in the movie. He wants to break down the barriers. He wants you to identify with what's being shot as if it's new and if it's good and as if you don't have to make any apologies for it. And in this scene, you see Rick Dalton become a great actor or, yes. or, or find some of the greatness that's in him. And Tarantino, I mean, has lived his politics in this sense. Throughout his career, he's been known for taking discarded actors, whether it's John Travolta or Robert Forster, Pam Greer, David Carradine, and creating the best possible showcase for each one of them, really finding what their talents are. If I can skip ahead to the end of the movie, and then we'll double back and talk about some other stuff. The fact that it ends with... A, a revisionist history, yeah. a sort of alternative timeline of the Manson murders where they don't in fact take place because rugged American masculinity intervenes. It ends with Rick Dalton being <laughs> led into the Sharon Tate inner sanctum. He lives next door to Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, who at this time, having just made Rosemary's Baby, is not just one of the most exciting directors in the world, but is also representative of these winds of change. So he lives next door, but he might as well live 20 miles 
miles away behind a fort. Uh, Rick Dalton is let in. I mean, I interpret this to some degree as what if the old Hollywood and the new Hollywood were synthesized? Absolutely. What, what if we could? What if we could learn from these people that we discarded? What if we could find the beauty in all of this yeah, trash? And what, and what allows for that to happen? Right? It's the destruction of the hippies. The word hippie is said repeatedly in this movie with such like bile and animosity towards it. And yeah, in case you don't know what the ending is, I mean, everything basically happens as it did in real life, but the hideous Tate-LaBianca murders uh, never happen. And instead, the Mansons accidentally enter Rick Dalton's house where they find Brad Pitt uh, stoned out of his gourd on an LSD cigarette that he's smoked. And yeah, he just like beats the shit out of them in some classic uh, Tarantino-esque violence. One of them then runs out into the pool where Rick Dalton is listening to music. He then repairs to the garage where he gets a flamethrower that they've let him keep from some, uh, I don't know, movie where he used a flamethrower on Nazis. We see a little excerpt from that earlier in the film. I feel like that's Tarantino kind of like riffing on himself. It's a very like inglorious bastards kind of moment. Uh, and yeah, he just like uh, scorches her alive. So, I mean, I think your reading of the end of the film is right, but it's, it's important. Like what, what precedes it is, uh, is, you know, part of the story as well. Well, what's also important is the dramatic shift in tone and the sort of melancholy note that the movie ends on. It's not merely a reactionary wish fulfillment ending. If you're looking at the movie with your two eyes and your ears, you can tell that there's a fantasy component in this scene compared to what's come before. I mean, Rick Dalton... It's it's like a kind of... It's so absurd and over the top. It's sort of like a dreamlike sort of sequence. Rick Dalton literally pulls out the flamethrower that he had in the movies, becomes the Rick Dalton the movies to kill this person. And then when he goes over to Sharon Tate's house, Tarantino's camera does this crane shot, sort of leaving them behind. And he introduces this music that's quite down beat or at least melancholy you know it ends with the title once upon a time in hollywood as if to suggest that this is a fairy tale mm. the cumulative effect of all of this is to say yeah maybe that would be nice but that's the movies this didn't actually happen the march of progress actually happened mm. And I think, you know, as somebody who is sympathetic to the March of Progress, (laughs) I look at this and think, well, yeah, of course that didn't happen. Of course that couldn't have happened. The March of Progress did happen. Tarantino might disagree with me on that, but it ends after the triumphant note and it ends somewhere a little more disquieting. I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think, you know, some of the, uh, you know, absolutely savage reviews that were written about this film uh, perhaps missed nuances like that. It's going back in the conversation a little bit, but I do want to say one more thing about the whole idea of using, you know, and this isn't so much a criticism of Tarantino because I think that he's just picking up on something that's been in the culture for decades, but the idea of using the Manson family as a sort of, you know, shorthand for the supposed excesses of 60s counterculture. I mean, you get that adopted as a sort of narrative through, you know, Richard Nixon and then, you know, Ronald Reagan. And then, you know, by the 90s, liberals have kind of adopted a version of it too. And then that's how you get Forrest Gump. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But I mean, to me, it's just so lazy. I mean, the the counterculture of the 1960s, like so much of it was, I mean, I'm going to sound like painfully earnest for a second here, but it's, you know, it's people who are morally outraged about the Vietnam War and about, you know, the division of labor in the household and how sexist it was and things like that. Uh, It was people marching for civil rights. And I don't know when something like uh, the Mansons are used as a sort of lazy shorthand for like, yeah, all the all the bad stuff, all the stuff that was disruptive of this sort of, you know, serene equilibrium that existed in the 1950s or whatever. I mean, to me, the, the modern equivalent of that is like the way that people on the right today will look at like the most innocuous forms of social liberalism and to them, like it's all the Marx 
racist plot. You know, it's like when, I don't know, uh, Amazon uh, posts something about Black Lives Matter or whatever. They're like, this is literally, this shows that like Antifa has penetrated like, you know, Jeff Bezos's inner sanctum or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely absurd. And here I think I would make at least a sort of a, a friendly criticism movie in that I just think that the use of the Mansons is entertaining as it is. And, you know, as fun as those sequences are, great casting and all the rest of it, you know, it, it is just channeling a kind of a pretty reactionary bit of received wisdom that I think kind of falls apart upon basic scrutiny. Well, while we're making friendly criticisms, I would like to talk a little bit about the notorious, oh, yeah, you, you, so, the you, infamous, <laughs> the discourse spawning. Yeah, perhaps as, as our resident expert on Bruce Lee, you'd like to offer some comment. Well, actually, I'm of two minds about this scene. Obviously, this scene with Bruce Lee spawned waves and waves and waves of discourse. Let a thousand takes bloom. I mean, when I saw it, you know, as somebody who's been interested in Bruce Lee for most of my life, I liked the scene. I still kind of like the scene because so much of what's been written about Bruce Lee, so many of the depictions of Bruce Lee have been pure hagiography. The Lee estate has held tightly to the reins. In fact, I think Bruce Lee's daughter successfully campaigned to have this movie banned in China, which, um, you know, I think we can agree, not cool. (laughs) The scene is a flashback with the Brad Pitt character, his reputation already sullied for the alleged murder of his wife, being on the set of The Green Hornet, the TV show with Bruce Lee where Rick Dalton is going to be doing a guest appearance. Bruce Lee is behind the scenes sort of shooting his mouth off, talking about how he could take the former Cassius Clay in a fight. Rick Dalton laughs. The two of them get into a bit of a mano a mano. Two rounds of a three-round fight interrupted in the middle of the last round. They've each won a round. That might be true on points, but I mean, uh, Cliff gets the better of Bruce Lee here. He throws him into the side of a car and like dents it. And also he lets Lee win the first round just because he's being alpha. It ends with Lee overcompensating, saying it was a tie. I didn't let him touch me. It ends with Lee being made a bit of a boob. Now, again, having read a lot about him, I was and am happy to see a depiction of him that depicts him, you know, as a real person person and also like as something sort of resembling what he probably was i mean he did act this way he did talk this way but i mean if you're invested in bruce lee as this ultimate immigrant success story as this great triumph of representation as this chinese american movie star who became the first modern chinese american movie star the first global chinese superstar and faced you know all sorts of racial discrimination all sorts of barriers on his way to success. I can certainly sympathize with somebody who says, well, why does Tarantino feel that he needs to take this powerful symbol down a peg? Further, I mean, its function in the movie is to suggest that Bruce Lee is one of the winds of change. He's one of these new forces. He's shown in the movie disrespecting the old stuntmen. And what the scene proves is, you know, maybe the old stuntmen know a thing or two. You know, this kung fu shit is all well and good. But, you know, maybe the rock hard, steady professionalism of the old guys is pretty good at the end of the day. Now, I mean, I think if we're tallying up his score on the way into heaven, Tarantino has done more than anyone to popularize Eastern genre cinema in the West. The second he became famous, he was advocating for people like John Woo and Jackie Chan and Wong Kar Wai before they were famous in the West. Kill Bill, I think, did more to legitimize the Shaw brothers in the eyes of the critical commentariat than anything. He was an early supporter of Bong Joon-ho and many other filmmakers, Park Chan-wook, all sorts of people. 
So in some of the backlash to the scene, I mean, he would almost get framed as this sort of white supremacist, make movies great again, reactionary filmmaker. I think he deserves a little bit of credit for the power of his advocacy for Eastern genre cinema. Nevertheless, I am coming around to the progressive critique of this scene. Look, man, I don't want any trouble. I'm just here to do a job. But you're laughing at what I'm saying, but I'm not saying anything funny. So what do you think is so funny? What I think is you're a little man with a big mouth and a big chip. And I think you should be embarrassed to suggest you be anything more than a stain on the seat of Cassius Clay's trunks. (laughs) Father, you're the one with the big mouth. And I would really enjoy closing it, especially in front of all my friends. But my hands are registered as lethal weapons. That means we get into a fight, I accidentally kill you. I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. By way of capping this episode, I just want to read a little bit from Tarantino's recent book, Cinema Speculation, which is a series of essays that he wrote on movies that came out during his childhood that were formative, the tone of which is not too far from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood although I, I would say delivered with less panache than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a, it's a rather rambling and disorganized book. But there's a chapter called New Hollywood in the 70s, the post-60s anti-establishment auteurs versus the movie brats that has some resonance with this film. He opens it by recounting this story that in the early 1970s, or maybe it was the late 1960s, Peter Bogdanovich, his wife Polly Platt, George Cukor, and Dennis Hopper were all at a dinner together. And Hopper, you know, flushed with success after Easy Rider, said to George Cukor, we're going to bury you. You know, that was him, you know, saying to the old guard, the new Hollywood is coming in, we're going to bury you. Tarantino from here creates a category of two different kinds of new Hollywood filmmakers. First, he establishes the post-60s anti-establishment auteurs, of which he includes Robert Altman, Bob Rafelson, Hal Ashby, Paul Mazursky, Arthur Penn, Sam Peckinpah, and several others. The post-60s anti-establishment auteurs had just won a revolution. The old studio Broadway musical-based extravaganza, like The Sound of Music, My Fair Lady, was finally at long last dead. Many filmmakers today can't wait for the day they can say that about superhero movies. The Hayes Code was dead and the rating board was alive. You could make a movie about any subject practically, and the material wouldn't have to be compromised. And if you made it, thanks to the rating board, the distributor could release it across the country without some hick sheriff in some jerkwater county claiming you broke their obscenity laws. These anti-establishment auteurs were as sorry to see the old studio system go bust as the French revolutionaries were to see Marie Antoinette vacate Versailles. Then Tarantino creates a new category of filmmaker, the movie brats, which came after the anti-establishment auteur. He calls them the first film school-educated generation of young white male directors raised on television who emerged and ended up defining the decade with their snazzy pop flicks. The movement had as its members Francis Ford Coppola, Peter Bogdanovich, Brian De Palma, Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, John Milius, Steven Spielberg, and Paul Schrader. He goes on to write of these directors that, unlike the anti-establishment auteurs, they were watching movies on television, they were watching exploitation films, they were watching Roger Corman movies. He writes, The movie brats were young enough to be the audiences that American international pictures were aiming for. They were young enough to see the films in actual drive-ins. They were the first generation of leading Hollywood filmmakers who watched Gordon Douglas's science fiction classic Them because it was about giant ants. 
In a way, that was the reason the movie Bratz wrestled the zeitgeist away from the post-60s anti-establishment auteurs that had started the new Hollywood era that the youngsters were thriving in. The hippie directors couldn't understand, or didn't want to understand, that some people watch movies about giant ants and take them seriously. So in that chapter, and there's a lot more of it, uh, a lot, lot more of it, Tarantino creates these two archetypes, you know, Sam Peckinpah versus George Lucas, basically, Robert Altman versus Steven Spielberg, one of whom was completely disenchanted by the old Hollywood, and the second of whom were perhaps critical in some way of the old Hollywood, but also loved it deeply and wanted to continue the tradition in some way. And I mean, there's no mistaking where Tarantino's sympathies lie. Hooray for Hollywood! Hollywood. 